Most people have heard of phytoestrogens, but did you know there are beneficial phytoandrogens that mimic and support testosterone and more? The top source of these is pine pollen. If you're looking for 100% natural hormonal support for men and women, you've got to try this. Right now, Lost Empire Herbs' best-selling pine pollen is available for one penny plus shipping and handling. Go to GeniusPollen.com to find out more and grab yourself a bag today. No hidden charges, no trial offer, no shenanigans. Just a low-cost way to try Lost Empire Herbs' top product for next to nothing. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Thomas Stanton. He's an AXA Research Fund Fellow at Loughborough University. We're going to talk about plastics and microplastics and uh, anthropogenic materials. So that's what we're going to work on. Thomas, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. If you would, tell me a bit about your uh, background, how you got into microplastics and the research areas you're in. Yeah, so um, I think like most people, my interest in, in microplastics and plastic pollution sort of stemmed from reading the news and, and seeing news articles and, and TV coverage of the problem of, of plastic pollution. I was lucky enough to be at a very supportive university as an undergrad student reading about this stuff. And, and they kind of let me loose with a couple of projects that the start of my research journey, I suppose. And then that ultimately led on to a master's degree and a, a PhD and ultimately what I do now as a researcher in the field of plastic pollution and anthropogenic materials materials and, and more broadly water quality. So what are you researching now? What questions are you trying to answer? So my work at the moment is primarily focused on textile fiber pollution. So the pollution that comes from our clothing when we wash it or, or when we wear it in our day-to-day lives includes these tiny fibers, microfibers. So they're frequently grouped with microplastics, but they're not all plastic. So cotton fibers, wool fibers, and they still shed from our clothing as we use and wash them. And what my work at the moment is doing is looking at how these fibers are lost from garments, how they move through particularly river systems, and then how they interact with chemicals in the environment. So how they they potentially pose a chemical risk as well as a physical risk. So the physical risk of these particles, just like all microplastics, is that they can entangle and block the guts of of particularly small organisms that ingest them, and then they can accumulate up the food chain as well to to higher trophic orders. So where do garments tend to lose their fibres? Do they just lose them all day long? Um, Is it primarily in the wash? It's primarily in the wash. Um, So yeah, the the laundering of clothing um, and drying of clothing, particularly using tumble dryers for example, is a a major source of these textile fibres, but they do come off as we wear them, as we, I always tell people to put a a glass surface down when they're folding their clothes, their dry clothes, and you'll see all the fibres deposit on something like your phone screen. Um, So they do come off just through through normal, as we're putting them on, as we're taking them off, as we're walking down the street as well, but a lot less. Um, As a, um, you know, a shirt or pants or whatever it may be gets washed, uh, does it release more fibers over time or less? Or are there are certain points where you know the structure of garment starts to break down in one spot and a hole forms and then maybe preferentially lots of fibers come out near that hole or that tear. 
it's exactly that. So we, we, we find that the majority of loss sort of happens in the early washes of a garment. So a lot of garments that come to us from the shops or from online retailers have actually been pre-washed. So they may have had a, a lot of fibres shed from them already. Um, you may then get a, a sort of more stable period of, of more consistent shedding. And then, as you say, once the garment starts to break down and degrade and you, it gets holes in it, there's a, essentially a greater area from which fibres can be lost and the, the structural integrity of the, the garment starts to decrease. So when someone has like a favorite old shirt, partner's telling them to throw it away. They're saying it for more reasons than one, I guess, reasons they don't even know. Huh? Well, if it's a good quality shirt, it might not be falling apart. But but yeah, if it is just a rag, then yes. Yeah, no, I'm just teasing. What, what kind of uh, clothing tends to shed more or cause more problems? There's synthetics, then there's natural clothing like wool, cotton, et cetera, or somewhat natural. So what, um, what kinds of clothing are, you know, how do they shed differently? Rayon, et cetera. So the majority of work that's looked at this has focused on plastic clothing, polyesters, our nylons, our acrylics. There's been some work on natural textile fibre garments, so your cottons and your wools and stuff. But to be honest, there isn't a, enough of an evidence base for me to say either way, whether it's uh, natural or synthetic garments that shed more. Part of what I'm hoping to do, or I will be doing with my, my current fellowship, but it's so variable, the, the research that's out there at the moment. We know that a lot is coming off. That's kind of the take-home message, but we've still got a way to go to try and understand how it varies between garment types. So in the wash, you know, have you looked at cold versus warm wash or hot wash? And, you know, I don't know, in the beginning, is that when a lot of fibers come off and then it slows down throughout a wash? Or is it just, you know, do tons of fibers come off? What happens? Uh, so the majority of what that's looked at this has basically just taken the effluent that comes out of your washing machine and they've they've changed the cycles they've changed whether the application of fabric softener for example can influence it temperature spin cycle all those sorts of things so there's less work looking at where the which stage of the washing process sheds fibers and that's something that I'm kind of in, in the processes of looking at at the moment but I haven't had a chance to crunch the numbers just yet but uh, yeah it really depends on the washing machine so not all washers are the same you can have a 30 degree cotton cycle from Bosch washing machine and that's not going to be the same as a 30 degree wash cycle from another brand so it, it's compounded by the fact that we have such variable washing procedures and washing machine settings um, that it, it just makes it that little bit harder to, to answer questions like that, unfortunately. But that's the direction that a lot of research is going. So hopefully we will have those answers soon. Yeah, do you think at some point that um, an extra filtration step will be required on the outlet of uh, laundry, you know, on washers and dryers to reduce the number of fibers that get into the waste stream of water? So it already is in, in some parts of the world. So there's legislation requiring that in France. There are pros and cons of it because those filters then have to be removed. So the user has to know how to responsibly dispose of, of these filters, not dispose, sorry, clean these filters. We don't want people to then just go and wash the, the filter down the sink and wash all the fibers straight into the drains that uh, ultimately the washing machines feed into as well. But yeah, it's certainly an option, but it's not the only one. Okay. What about when um, clothing goes into the dryer then? Does it make it friable? And do a lot more fibers come off or is the drying just you know, prepare the clothing for next time or does it accentuate the loss of fibers? Well, I think you only need to look at the link 
predictors of, of drying machines to know that they do lead to the loss of a lot of fibres. I haven't in my work been looking at whether or not the drying itself changes the likelihood of, of fibre shedding subsequently. So I, I would be able to comment on that from sort of a scientific angle. Oh, is there anyone looking at that? There likely is. I'm not aware of anything. Um, I can send you some links to to some papers and have a look if that would be useful. But I'm not aware of anything off the top of my head, no. Well, I'm just curious. Maybe you're handling the washer part and then some other scientists are handling the dryer part. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't use dryers. A lot of people also don't use washing machines. A lot of people wash directly into lakes and rivers uh, where they don't have the sort of sanitation infrastructure to, to wash either in home or in, in sort of community laundrettes. So that's a, a different angle as well. They're washing directly into these water bodies. There's no interference or no possible interference from filters. And they then have obviously have no option to dry their clothes other than to dry their clothes naturally. Yeah, they'll dry it on like clotheslines outside and yeah. hang them up. Yeah, exactly. I see what you mean. So what, um, I don't know, the, what are the nature of the fibers that come off? Do they tend to get tangled in each other and end up in clumps or do they stay individual and then curl around or cause uh, cause havoc with biological organisms that meet up with them later on like what happens both of that can those things can happen sometimes the fibers are just free and loose and they can work the, themselves free they may well clump but so basically what comes out of a washing machine is a mix, mixture of a lot of individual fibers in suspension and also clumps of fibers okay and then these cool. go down our, our wastewater infrastructure where we're lucky enough to have it in, in the parts of the world that do have good sanitation to wastewater treatment plants and they'll get mixed up. Some of them will settle out, become part of, sort of the bio, sorry, the solid part of, of the treatment process and others will remain in suspension and flow out through effluent channels. So yeah, we tend to get, well, from the work that I've, I've done, I haven't seen big clumps of fibres coming out of wastewater treatment plants. The fibres that I've seen coming out of wastewater treatment plants and and in rivers and in the atmosphere have been individual fibres. But that's not to say that they don't come off in clumps and then get sort of disaggregated into individual fibres on their journey to the environment. Most supplements are taken on faith and can take weeks or months to have an effect. Even supplements backed by scientific studies may or may not deliver those same benefits to you. But what if you could feel the results of what you took within just a few days? Lost Empire Herbs offers the highest quality, wild-harvested, non-irradiated pine pollen, and that can dramatically impact your hormones fast. Right now, you can grab it for one cent plus shipping and handling at GeniusPollen.com. Right, in a wastewater treatment plant, you know, does the flocculation step kind of agglomerate a lot of fibers or, you know, does this cause problems for wastewater treatment plants if the level is high enough? Um, so we certainly find that wastewater treatment plants um, have a, a very good ability to remove textile fibres from their influent. So the, the concentrations of fibres flowing into wastewater treatment plants are a lot higher than, than the concentrations flowing out in the effluent. Um, frequently we find it's sort of in the order of 90, 95% plus removal. So the, the processes that incorporate the solid particles like, like flocculation, like um, your, your more standard settling procedures, that incorporate these fibres into the sediments are very effective. We then have issues where, with what, what do we do with that, that solid material? A lot of it is spread onto land, um, agricultural land as a fertiliser. So you then introduce these textile fibres along with a lot of other pollutants into the soil environment. And when it rains, of course, they can, they can be washed off into neighbouring water bodies, so rivers, lakes, ponds, and, and ultimately the ocean. 
Yeah, that's terrible. Do you know if um, anyone's modeled to see if, uh, you know, biofilms form on the fibers? If they tend to, uh, you know, accumulate their own microbiome, you could say? Um, yes, yeah, so we know that biofilms do form on, well, they, they form on pretty much any substrate in an aquatic environment. So that will include things like plastics and microplastics, including textile fibers and also natural textile fibers as well. So they, they do form their own colonies of biofilm. Whether or not they're unique to the fibres, I've not seen. There may be some work out there, but I'm not an ecologist, bacterial ecologist or um, algal ecologist. So that sort of thing kind of goes over my head, I'm afraid. Uh, but they, they are colonised by biofilming communities, yes. And what uh, bodies of water do they tend to accumulate in more than others? Like where, where's their, their path typically go? I know it can go anywhere. but um, of- So we know that these... Particles, these, these fibres are in marine environments, including marine sediments. We know that they're in um, faeces of animals that live in the marine environment as well. We know that they're in atmospheric deposition. We know that they're in rivers. They, they are everywhere. Their ultimate sink, many might say, is the ocean. That's where all of our rivers flow. But along the way, they can get caught up in terrestrial environments so they can get incorporated into the soil. There's been some work looking at how the activity of invertebrates in the soil can move microplastics into the subsurface where they, they are more likely to be retained for longer periods of time and along the courses of rivers we have lakes of course and at the bottom of lakes are sediments that are kind of time machines of what's happened upstream of them they incorporate a lot of natural material things like pollen and, and diatoms but also pollutants and we know that microplastics and textile fibers have been found in lake sediment records as well so they're very very pervasive and where they tend to concentrate does depend on many factors beyond just the the environment themselves so the social factors the economic factors of the catchments the other things that are in the catchment that they might get trapped in so for example if we've got a large dam it's going to stop a lot of material going down to the ocean. So it's quite a hard question to answer, to be honest, because the environment is so variable. But the, the, the take-home message is that they are everywhere. Um, what about the uh, length of the morphology of, of fibers? Again, some are alone, some are together in clumps. You know, have you seen anything that governs the behavior of the shapes they end up forming? In terms of whether or not they form clumps or stay as individuals, do you mean? Yeah, I mean, I know that the shapes are probably infinitely varied, but <laughs> is there a preferential state? You know, like, so when fibers end up in salt water versus fresh water versus brackish, et cetera, um, is their fate any different? No, I, I would expect not, but that's more of a question of the f- particle, f- the physics of the particles, I suppose. I don't know whether or not the density of the water would have an influence on the flocculation of them again that that kind of comes down onto the fact that there's an infinite variety of concentrations of fibers in these environments that will also have a play what you need to answer those questions is some experimental work where you can control for for all of this you can go out into the environment and make observations about the accumulation of fibers in an environment and the length of fibers in an environment but those environments are so variable that we can't just say that it's typical without sampling a lot more than than an individual study is really capable of doing so there would certainly have to be some laboratory-based work there to look at the actual mechanisms so that's something that's going to come later on in my fellowship looking at how these textile fibers of different polymers and different morphologies 
move through freshwater systems. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Well, again, what about saltwater systems? Is anyone modeling those in comparison? And has anything noticed different? Um, not that I'm aware of using the these kind of mesocosm approaches, these kind of lab-based studies. I'm very much a, a freshwater scientist. I don't have that understanding of how marine systems move and work and, and change through time to be able to apply that to, to the work that I'm doing. Mm, okay. So what are some of the other, uh, the additional questions that you're trying to answer with uh, the upcoming fellowship? So um, in addition to looking at the, the shedding of fibers from different garment structures and different fiber types and looking at how they move through river systems, I'm going to be looking at the chemistry of these fibers. So if we expose these fibers to different types of freshwater system, do they leach chemicals from the, the sort of fiber manufacturer? So things like the dyes, for example, to different levels. How does that vary between different fiber types? And then also, how do these fibers interact with other chemical pollutants? So we, we all know that plastic and microplastic pollution is a, a big problem, but they're only really the tip of the iceberg of the, the pressures we're putting on the environment, but particularly freshwater systems. So I'm going to be looking at how textile fibers interact with other ubiquitous pollutants. So things like pharmaceuticals and heavy metals and persistent organic pollutants as well. Uh, so do they act as sinks for these, these pollutants? Does one fibre type have a, a greater affinity for these pollutants than another fibre type? And then ultimately, how long do they stay absorbed? Are they likely to be very long-term sinks or do they pose the potential to act as a vector for these pollutants to different environments as these fibres travel through a, a river or maybe the sea as well? Yeah, I would think just like biofilms form... This, you know, I would think that the fibers, you know, when they're in any body of water, they would preferentially absorb certain materials. Like you said, they form biofilms in certain cases. I would think, again, certain elements in the water, in the water column or certain organisms would find homes within the fibers or adhere to them or certain molecules might adhere to them or desorb from them, like you said, at different times. Is there any preferential nature to these fibers where they, you know, they're, they're charged I don't know, they, they create a microenvironment again for certain organisms to adhere to them or certain chemicals. Has that been studied? Um, well, that's, so that's kind of one of the things that I'm going to be doing with the fellowship. These are generally long-chain, relatively long-chain polymers. They're pretty stable chemically, the plastics, but also cotton. So cellulose, for example, was a very stable polymer. I, the way that the chemistry works, the mechanisms of the chemistry, you'll have to ask a chemist, I'm afraid. But that is ultimately what, what I'm trying to find out, not necessarily the mechanisms of the kinetics, the mechanisms of the kinetics, but I'm going to be focusing more on the kinetics of the sorption and desorption itself.
I got you. Okay. Um, so what do you expect to be able to figure out in the next few years with your fellowship? So you just mentioned this question. What else uh, do you think might come of it? So the, the kind of bigger picture here is we know that these natural textile fibers are very common in the environment. So some of my earlier work, some of the work coming from my PhD, found that these natural textile fibers dominated the samples that I was looking at, and that's been repeated um, subsequently by people all over the world. So we know that these natural textile fibers, the cotton and the wool, uh, well, particularly the, the cellulosic fibers, so things like cotton, are very prevalent in the environment, and they outnumber synthetic uh, plastic textile fibers in in many cases. However, these textile fibers have been marketed, these natural ones have been marketed as green alternatives to plastics. They're saying, you know, if you want to buy clothes, buy natural fibered clothing. We've had people or um, companies market natural fibered clothing as biodegradable. There's evidence to suggest that, that this is not the case, particularly in, in aquatic environments. And so the, the motivation behind this fellowship is to better understand the relative impacts of natural textile fibers compared to synthetic textile fibers, our, um, our plastic textile fibers, so that consumers can make more informed decisions and also to inform the industry as to the realities of, of this, because this boils down to greenwashing. We, we've got these companies stating that natural textile fibers are more environmentally friendly than um, plastic textile fibers. And the only evidence that they have or that they're actually really using to support these arguments is that they're not plastic. They haven't actually looked to see if these natural textile fibers are themselves going to be causing harm in the environment. Mm, I see what you mean. Well, it might be difficult. You would confound it maybe with sheep or other animals from where the you know the fibers came, if they're natural. Cotton, no, obviously, but you know, how much do they shed? I guess that's you know that's work for uh, for someone else to do. So yes, I mean the the other thing there, and this is particularly why we're looking at the leaching of, of these fibers, is that, yes, um, wool is, is a natural material. You know, there will be wool fibers in a, a field full of sheep. But wool that's been treated by people to possess color and other technical properties is not natural. And how do those modifications that we make as humans to that natural polymer potentially have negative impacts on the environment whilst those those fibers are present in rivers in the soil in uh, the sea it's a bit of a clearer message when we talk about cotton so cotton is a, a form of cellulose and when you pick cotton off off a plant it is the the sort of common cellulose one form of of cotton of, of cellulose sorry so cellulose one is a very common uh, cellulose polymer but when we process it for the garment industry, we actually transform it through a process called mercerization into a different polymer um, to cellulose two. And this is a much more thermodynamically stable polymer that's much more resistant to degradation. So yes, if you made a garment out of cotton from a plant, it would be much more likely to biodegrade than a plastic one. We haven't got that same evidence base for the types of cotton that actually come off our clothing, the cellulose two form. Okay. Um, does anyone, or will you have a setup where you have, let's say, a, a you know, a tank of water that will be sloshing around, and there'll be some fibers in it, and you can model the degradation of the fibers, or you know, again, model what sticks to the fibers. Are you going to be be able to set that up, or do you know of anyone in the field that has set up an apparatus like that to you know observe in a in a lab environment what happens? No, I'm I'm not uh, aware of anyone doing that, and I unfortunately don't have the time within my my fellowship to explore that myself it's a really good question it's a really good idea it would certainly enhance our understanding but again it's 
it's compounded by the fact that the environments that we'd be trying to model are just so variable. Um, we would, it'd be very hard to do something like that for a river, for example, and make a statement that is representative of rivers. I think there's a big drive to sort of quantify numbers of fibers in the environment or rates of degradation and they're important questions but the underlying issue is that we know that these fibers are there we know that they're very abundant and we know that they're a problem that we need to do something about we're always in search of those numbers do we distract from the the sort of more pressing issue so as, as interesting as that is academically the relevance to the the real world scenario of understanding fibers in a river if we take take that example is i would argue quite limited well it's not going to give you exact answers by any means but it could give you orders of magnitude could show effects that you know may also show up in the river it could be i guess that if nothing else a directional guide about where the research may want to go by modeling it like that again can't yes, no, you make a, you make a very good point and i think it could perhaps make reflections on, you know, if you're studying a, a river of certain characteristics, then you might want to consider X, Y, and Z, certainly. But again, going back to rivers, they are so variable. There would have to be some quite broad categories, I think. And I guess I would expect these plastic fibers to be hydrophobic, right? I mean, yes. do they develop, yeah, just like, um, yes, just do they like integrate into the water at all? But, yeah. Sorry, do they? Do they end up tracting like, you know, any hydrophilic elements where they, uh, I don't know, they, well, I don't know what would happen, but uh, I guess yes, they're so heavy enough and big enough to fall through the lake. Yeah, you're right. They could fall through the water column. They could be carried along. I mean, anything could happen. So, I mean, yeah, they, they really could. Um, we know that these these fibers are throughout the water column and ultimately can end up in the sediments. And, and biofilming, as you touched on earlier, is a big contributor and driver to the the sinking of these these plastics. We know that yes, they they do attract hydrophobic pollutants as well, and of course, biofilms themselves um, accumulate chemical pollutants within them. So if we have a biofilm on a plastic that then gets ingested by an organism at the bottom of the food chain, we've got you know problem on top of problem on top of problem there. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Well, very good, Thomas. Where can people find out more about your work? So I have a profile on the AXA Research Fund webpage and on the Loughborough University website they can find me on twitter um at dr t stanton yeah if they want to email me my email address is on my my university profile as well very good thomas thanks so much for coming on the podcast and i know it's a very new area but i'm glad that people like you are researching it so thank you thank you remember before you go to grab your one penny bag of pine pollen for all the amazing all natural hormonal support that men and women the world over are raving about try it out and see how it works for you all you have to do is head to GeniusPollen.com to grab your bag today. Within days, you may be able to notice greater energy, more focus, added recovery, and more. Again, please visit GeniusPollen.com to learn more now. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.